Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 29. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them. Peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Again, he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Then he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, We have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Then Jesus told him, You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In a previous appointment, the church I served hosted a preschool. And it really was a joy to have a group of three to five-year-olds bringing noises throughout the church during the school year. They'd sing, play on the playground. They'd have chapel with stories and music. It was all very sweet, and it brought a sense of vitality and liveliness to the church whenever they were around. In the area that was specifically designated for and utilized by the preschoolers, there hung a sign as a great reminder, and perhaps you've seen these words in recent days. Wash your hands and say your prayers because germs and Jesus are everywhere. And as Vitruvius from the Lego movie says, we know it's true because it rhymes. We're all sheltering in place to safeguard ourselves from what we feel are those everywhere germs. But I wonder how in this time we're experiencing the everywhere Jesus. We're living in an interesting time right now. Partly through the magic of technology, many of us are figuring out that God's presence isn't restricted to the walls of the church. Of course not. And at the same time, many of us are also figuring out how much we miss the gathering of believers when we can't join together in person. It's one thing when we miss those Sunday mornings when we've chosen other priorities, but now that gathering is not an option, our hearts just long for it differently. It's been the experience of a lot of people throughout the history of Jewish and Christian faith. The Hebrew people had been conquered and captive so often because of Israel's strategic location. They knew what it was like to have their culture and religious practice shut down and all but snuffed out. 
When the Hebrew people of the kingdom of Judah were conquered by Babylon and the temple destroyed, once that time of captivity and diaspora or exile ended, they began to rebuild their demolished temple. We read in Ezra how the returning exiles rebuilt the altar for sacrifices. They rebuilt the foundation for the temple. They received favor from the Babylonian king to rebuild. And they praised, made noise, and sang, God is good. His faithful love endures forever. The people who remembered the temple before it was destroyed wept aloud to see the foundations being rebuilt. And the praises and the weeping could be heard for miles Nehemiah tells about how the people assembled and listened to Ezra teach the book of the law. He read to a crowd from daybreak until noon. The people were attentive because the thing that they had robbed from them for so long had been restored. They had been told in exile that they are weak, defeated, slaves, and worthless. The Holy Scriptures were telling them instead that they were beloved, chosen, set apart, and redeemed by the mighty hand and outstretched arm of their liberating God. Their gathering itself preached too. The gathering was a bold act of saying, these hardships did not break us. God has restored us. Though they tried to bury us, they discovered we are seeds. Move ahead some 400 years to John chapter 20. It's still the day of resurrection, and we meet fearful disciples who have been grieving how the most important thing in their lives had been brutally taken away from them in a way they thought was permanent. But they heard from one of their fellow followers, Mary of Magdala, that she had seen Jesus that morning, and he most certainly was not dead. Right up until that Thursday night, these disciples and Jesus had been almost brazen in their public gatherings. They knew Jesus was a wanted man, but he had the favor of the crowds. So they joined him as he taught. They saw him taunt the religious leaders, and the crowd just cheered for him all the louder. They could walk around in public, eat in public, and enjoy life in public right up until the night of Jesus' arrest. And that changed everything. As Christ's friend Peter discovered in the courtyard of the high priest on the night of Jesus' arrest, it was no longer safe to be associated with Jesus of Nazareth. The favor they had enjoyed was clearly shifted. They scattered, and they were scared. This once very tight group couldn't come together like they once did, so they came together as they could. A group, a small group of ten, no Thomas, no Judas, they were sheltered in place, missing what they had known before. And that leads to our first lesson this morning's scripture. Jesus still knows where to find us. Jesus still knows where to find us. That Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And suddenly, Jesus was standing there with them. Peace be with you, he said. And as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Life is a complicated game of hide and seek. When you're a kid, hide and seek is a great game. You want to show your prowess and skill set in effective camouflage and hiding. If you were like me and hide and seek was on the table as an option for playtime as a kid, you would make sure to dress in your darkest clothes and practice controlling your breathing so as to limit your movement and any noises that you would make so you wouldn't be found. It was great to be the last one found because that meant you were the best at hiding. 
That's a handy skill for outwitting spies, attackers, dinosaurs, and monsters, unless, of course, those things had thermal vision. Thermal vision required more advanced hide-and-seek skills, and if movies are to be believed, then you either cover yourself with mud or engine coolant. These are important tips to hold on to in case you ever run across anything like that, which is unlikely, but so was shutting down the entire global population by sheltering against a terrible pandemic, so you never know. But for hide-and-seek, at least, it was great to be the last person found. But it was terrible to never be found. You think about that? You wanted to have ninja skills, but you didn't want to be invisible. Invisible is lonely. It doesn't feel like you have the best hide-and-seek skills. It feels like you've been forgotten, like nobody cared enough to find you. Deep inside, when playing this game, we didn't really want to be found first, but we did want to be found. Because nothing moves on until we're found. How often does that translate to our adult lives? The hurts of life cause a lot of us to play hide-and-seek. We camouflage our true selves. We might cover up and spend some time in the shadows. Why don't we want to be found sometimes? Maybe it's because people who have seen us haven't been the most kind to us. Maybe the things that we're most self-conscious about are the things that other hurting people have found and mocked and exploited. Maybe we had been found but then lost again. And we're not sure we can take the hurt of another loss. Maybe we want to hope, but hope is risky. So we stay in the dark, hidden away, hoping that we're really good at hiding. But secretly, we want to be found. We don't want to be invisible because invisible is lonely. It feels like we've been forgotten. It feels like nobody cares enough to seek. May, we may hope to hide for a while, but only so someone would take the effort to find us and love us. Because nothing moves on until we're found. The disciples were hiding in fear. They were having a great time until the joy was violently torn from their lives. They locked themselves away. And there was definitely a part of them that didn't want to be found. It says here they didn't want to be found by the Jewish authorities. But you can imagine they were anxious to see Jesus too. Last time they saw him, he had been brutalized, stripped, mocked, drained, killed, and buried in shame. Last time he saw them, they scurried. They ran. What would he think of them? What would he say? Then there he was. And both his words and presence declared, Peace. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. I found you. You've been shut off, but I'll be sending you out. You've been hiding in fear, but I filled you with courage and power. You've been lost in your shame, but you've been found with forgiveness enough to share. You are found, and you are loved. Ten of them heard the message firsthand from the risen Christ, but Thomas did not. That leads to our second lesson. Being real with God also means being honest with our doubts. Being real with God also means being honest with our doubts. One of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were there together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. We don't know why Thomas wasn't there. 
Maybe because he was very brave and didn't feel the need to cower in hiding. Maybe because he was super scared and he didn't want to be with the rest of the Jesus cult fugitives. Scripture doesn't say why he wasn't there. They just say he wasn't there and he probably didn't think he would miss out on anything. Nothing as significant as seeing his once dead rabbi return to life and give him the gift of the fire of God living inside him. Nothing as fancy as that. So when he heard the story of the other ten, Thomas wanted proof. Last thing he saw with his own eyes was his master and teacher killed in the most horrific way. Thomas witnessed some amazing things while studying under Jesus for three years of public ministry, but something wouldn't let him believe this one. This was a bridge too far. Thomas was great at speaking out loud what subtlety would often place between the lines for many of us. When Jesus was resolved to return to Jerusalem to bring his friend Lazarus back from death, the disciples asked, Hey, so it wasn't that long ago that the people there wanted to kill you to death by stoning you. You really want to go back? And Jesus did. So Thomas said, Okay, we'll all go and die with him. When Jesus was talking about his journey through death and to eternity on the night of the Last Supper, he said, You know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said, No, actually, we don't know where you're going, and so we don't know the way. And now as his friends are telling him a story that is absolutely stretching credulity, Thomas says, Hey guys, I'll believe it when I see it. In that one statement, Thomas gained for himself the label of doubter. Now, Thomas was uncertain. He gave voice to his concerns because there was no reason not to. I don't imagine the other apostles got defensive or called him a hell-bound sinner because he didn't immediately believe what they could not have possibly imagined just a day before. There wasn't cultural pressure to quiet his question or to holster his concern. And in his experience of what is possible through God, he was probably pretty confident in Jesus' ability to handle a question. So he was open with his doubt. But he also didn't linger in smug skepticism. He didn't look down on his friends who were definitely still in shock over what they witnessed and think that they're just gullible rubes with weak minds who lack intelligence and critical thinking skills because he knew them too well for that. Here's what Thomas did. He shared his question and concern with his friends. Then he joined those friends to put himself in a position to discover if his doubt was justified. He couldn't totally rule out the possibility of Jesus being raised from the dead, and he had been through enough with these friends to know that they wouldn't be cruel or false towards him. So he joined when they came together the next time, still uncertain, possibly afraid, and you'd think a little humble for giving this a try. And Jesus found him. Jesus found Thomas, and his words and presence spoke peace to his uncertain heart. Here's a third lesson. Jesus wants us to experience things that lead to faith. Jesus wants us to experience things that lead to faith. He said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And Jesus said, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So not every doubt is answered by Jesus showing up and doing exactly what's been requested. I know that. Rarely, in fact. If I can paraphrase Dr. King, faith often means that we take the first step without seeing the whole staircase. 
There are some incredible proofs that Jesus offered during his earthly ministry to show who he is. But in this story, there are some incredible things we can see at work in what Jesus did not do. For example, Jesus didn't return unchanged. He didn't return unchanged. Last week when we read of Mary Magdalene seeing Jesus on Easter morning, she at first didn't recognize him, thinking he may have been the gardener. Maybe it's because the last time she saw Jesus, he was beaten and murdered. Maybe it's because, like Paul describes, our resurrection bodies are as different from these dying bodies as seeds are from plants. Regardless, Jesus stood before her changed. And if we take this as a cue for how we offer evidence of a risen Christ, then we're changed too. Listen to how this change is described to the Roman church. Paul's telling the Romans, For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been unified with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power over our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Our changed lives offer proof and evidence of Christ's resurrection. One of the other things that Christ doesn't do, Jesus doesn't return without wounds. He doesn't return without wounds. One night last week while I was trying to get to sleep, I caught an episode of Friends where Joey Tribbiani's health benefits lapsed because he hadn't worked enough recently. And so he gets a hernia at the same time he's trying to audition. And he spends a good portion of the entire episode humorously and even disturbingly trying to conceal the fact that he has tremendous hernia pain so he can get accepted for a role and gain his medical benefits back. And as odd as it sounds, that's sometimes how church feels. So many people come to church with pain. Often invisible, but very real pain. And because they want to be accepted, they'll conceal their pain. Maybe it's so they can stick around long enough to experience healing. Partly it's because many well-intentioned Christians see wounds as weakness or punishment. Perhaps they'll pour salt on those wounds. Salt of judgment or condemnation or isolation. If we take this part seriously, that Jesus showed up with visible wounds, then we as Christ's followers do not salt wounds. We tend to them with the medicines of God's restoring forgiveness, love, and mercy. And we remember that we have wounds of our own. Don't deny your wounds. You either end up with wounds that fester, or you deny God the glory and credit for doing the work of healing that only God can do. Jesus did not withhold proof in bodily form from one who doubted. It's another thing he didn't do. He didn't withhold proof from one who doubted. Thomas wanted to see and touch. Jesus was in a position to offer evidence to someone who was crying to know that his resurrection was real, and so he did. I can't make Jesus appear for anyone. In fact, there's very little I can control as much as I'm tempted to try, but I can surrender myself to becoming more like the image of Christ, maybe especially among the people crying to know that Jesus is alive and that there's hope. John chapter 17, we read how Jesus prayed to his Father for us. 
saying, I've given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and they are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus will be known by our changed lives. He'll be known by our unity. He'll be known by our healing hurts. He'll be known by our love. So many people share Thomas's uncertainty. I won't believe unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers in them and place my hand in the wound in his side. And they might think, this hope is too good to be true. I've seen death and brokenness and wounds. How can this be real? It's got to be real in us first. So we live changed lives, having died to our old selves, so that Christ can be raised in us. We let our scars show as a testimony of God's healing work in our lives. We're part of the body, united together with Jesus Christ, with one head and one heart, beating for those who have not yet seen, who have not yet believed. Jesus told Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Let's let them see. Let's let people see that the resurrection is true and that Jesus is raised from death. May the world see evidence in our lives that have been transformed by a living Christ. Would you pray with me? God of love, Lord of our hope and eternity, we give you thanks today that you have shown who you are to us and that you continue to do so. We see it in the grace that's all around us and the kindnesses that we have no other explanation for in your provision that's beyond our deserving and in the gift of this fellowship that you give us that is greater than the distance that separates us. God, we thank you for the love that you pour out on us. Let us pour it out so richly so that a world with concerns and questions and even doubts would see so much proof of a living Christ through our lives that they wouldn't have a choice but to see, to feel the love, and to praise. We thank you for all this in Christ's holy name. Amen.